So you're getting a very, very deep and very, very addictive cocktails of neurochemistry. So when you're working with flow, you have to know what you're doing. Hey, podcast listener, you're about to discover insider tips, tricks, and secrets to making more sales and converting more prospects into customers with email marketing. For more information about the email marketing podcast or the autoresponder guy, go to dropdeadcopy.com slash podcast. Hey, everybody. It's John McIntyre here, the autoresponder guy, and it's time for episode 55 of the McMethod Email Marketing Podcast, where you discover... How to use email marketing to make more sales and grow your business. Very, very simple stuff. Today, I'll be talking to Stephen Kotler. Now, Stephen wrote a book called The Rise of Superman, which has nothing to do with marketing whatsoever except for the fact that it tells you step-by-step how you can access a flow state. Now, so what's a flow state? Well, you gotta look at skateboarders, snowboarders, uh, people who are rafting down rivers in the Canadian wilderness where one single mistake can kill them, okay? These are people where if they don't access a uh, altered state of consciousness where they are ultra-aware and ultra-focused, they'll die, right? So what's happened with these athletes is they have, out of necessity... They've learned and developed the ability to access these flow states almost on command. So what I'm calling a flow state here is this state of heightened awareness, heightened creativity, heightened productivity. Okay, Now, it's a great book, and it got me excited about snowboarding and uh, riding motorbikes and all sorts of fun stuff. But that's not the point here. The point here and why I got Stephen on the show is because I wanted him to explain, and this is, a bit, this is what his book is about, how anyone, even if you're not an action or an adventure sports athlete, how anyone can use the lessons that action sports athletes have learned to get into a flow state when they're riding, right? Or entrepreneurs as they're solving problems, right? Because if you can access this state, your writing will be better. You'll solve problems faster. You'll get more done. You'll make connections faster in your brain, right? So that's what this episode is about. How we as writers, as entrepreneurs, as business people, as consultants, as people trying to make a difference in the world, how we can access these flow states. And there are some very simple things. So if you've ever struggled with writer's block, you know, you sit down, you're trying to write an email, you're trying to write a sales letter. Maybe you're just trying to connect with clients or customers or prospects, it's hard, right? And that's why a lot of people sit there and they stare at the cursor, right? But it turns out, like I said, there are some simple things you can do that we all can do to get things moving, to write, to get writing. And once you start writing, it actually gets easier and easier. So that's today's episode. To get the show notes for this episode of the Email Marketing Podcast, go to themcmethod.com slash 55. Now, I've got this week's McMaster's Insight of the Week. McMaster's is my uh, private training community where you can learn how to do the McIntyre method. And there's a private forum in there as well. And what I've got here is an insight from the forum. This one's from Joy. Joy says, I think I'm giving too much information away for free. Now, that doesn't immediately sound like an insight. But one thing that I go on about quite a lot in uh, my daily tips newsletter, which you can sign up on the site and also inside McMaster's is that this whole idea that you've got to give away value and give away more value and then give away more value, it's wrong, okay? If it's not wrong, it's just crazily misunderstood because people get into this, they end up having this belief, they just give away tons of value, people will buy their stuff and that's just not how it works, okay? Content marketing, done right works, yes, I'm not debating that, but done wrong and most people do it wrong, done wrong, it doesn't work. So in Joy's case, she's giving away too much information for free. Now, what does that do? That cultivates a sort of a uh, freebie seeker attitude within her list, her prospects. They get used to receiving all this stuff for free 
And then it's like, why do I need the products? Why do I need to pay her for this stuff? She's just, just going to give it to me for free. Now, there are, like I said, there are right, there is a right time and a right way to give away information for free. Okay, it's not about being a penny pincher. Not about holding all the value back behind a curtain. You've just got to do it the right way. So in my case, how I do it with, say, the newsletter, the Daily Tips newsletter, is I tell everyone what to do and I tell everyone why they should do it. But if they want to know how to do it, they're going to have to sign up to McMasters. Okay, so an example of this is uh, I might tell them that empathy, right? One of my emails, one of the first emails in my sequence is all about empathy, why empathy is absolutely crucial. And if you can nail empathy, which we might describe as understanding your prospect better than they understand themselves, if you can nail empathy... Your emails and sales copy and marketing and website, everything you do will be imbued, will be empowered with something really special. You can even be a bad copywriter, but if you have empathy, if you understand exactly what your prospect wants, his problems, his dreams, what he's scared of, what keeps him up at night, if you can understand this stuff, you can be a bad copywriter and you can still win big, okay? So that's what one of my emails is about, all about empathy and all about the benefits of empathy. But if they want to learn how, if my subscriber wants to learn how to use empathy in the context of email marketing, which means surveys, which means knowing what questions to ask and how to use the answers from a survey, from the questions when you interview someone, how to use those answers and turn them into powerful, persuasive copy. If they want to know how to do that, once again, that's the how, they need to join McMaster's where they'll get the McIntyre method and stories that sell on a range of different training products. Okay. So what I've done is I've told them what, which is empathy. I've told them why, right? Because empathy gives you the ability to connect on a much deeper level. But if you want to know how to do it, you're going to have to cough up some coin for it. Okay. That's the valuable stuff. So that's just one way to do it. I'm going to leave it at that. If you want to leave me a review, you can support the show. Go to iTunes, search for the McMethod Email Marketing Podcast. Leave me a review. Tell me what you think of the show. You will be spreading the word, doing me a favor, and you'll put a smile on my face. And I will read it out on the show. I've got two listener questions. I'll get through these real quick so we can get into the interview today. Question number one is, what do you do when you finish a campaign? Make new offers? Well, I think the question is, it's not when you when a campaign finishes. It's a case of, in the largest sense, how do you have the highest lifetime value of a customer, right? And also, how can you increase your conversion rate from prospect to customer? So that's what we're really talking about. If people are still buying, you might as well just keep emailing them. So you just keep running that campaign or you send them different stuff. So I think the question, what do you do when you finish a campaign is the wrong question. The campaign never really finishes. The mission in business is to sell you know, invest, you know, one hour of your time or $1 of your money and then make a profit on it. So with the campaign, you know, with email, you need to keep emailing. It should never really end. You should only stop if people stop buying. So if people are bored by one offer or they've stopped buying that offer, we'll try a different one. Start segmenting. Start figuring out new products you could offer them. Start figuring out higher, more expensive products you could offer them. There's a whole ton of stuff you can do. A campaign should never really finish, okay? Question number two, what was the biggest turning point in your transition from working a job to becoming a recognized expert? Hands down, the answer is studying copywriting by writing down sales letters by hand and reading out old school books like scientific advertising and breakthrough advertising. Just doing that totally transformed everything. That's what kicked me off onto the journey that's brought me to where I am now is this autoresponder guy and, uh, you know, with a podcast and a product and a training community and all of that, okay? So hands down, that's what works for me is learning copywriting, learning marketing. Now, if you want to go and learn more about uh, McMasters, I forgot to mention it, you can go to the mcmethod.com slash McMasters. That's, that'll have all the information. That's it for now. Let's get into this interview with Mr. Stephen Kotler. 
It's John McIntyre here, the autoresponder guy. I'm here with Stephen Kotler. Now, Stephen Kotler is the author of a book called The Rise of Superman and uh, another book called Abundance. But uh, the reason I wanted to get him on today was to talk about what he talks about in The Rise of Superman. Now, this book is about what he calls The Rise of Superman. Obviously, what does that mean, though? It means if you look at snowboarders or uh, action sports or skateboarders, people who are rafting down rivers in Canada or climbing ice waterfalls, doing the crazy stuff where basically people had to access a certain flow state to stay alive. And that's what this book's about. And the interesting part and where I thought we'd link it to marketing and copywriting and business is that these people when they're in there, these snowboarders when they're in this situation is that they have to access this, uh, this flow state, these different brain chemicals or they're going to die. And so the idea is if we can learn how to hack that state, then we can become better writers or better musicians or better anything in life. So that's the kind of the natural link in there or how I'm trying to do it. So we'll get into that in just a minute. Stephen, how are you going today? Really well, thank you. How are you? Fantastic. Fantastic. Good to have you on. Before we get into this flow stuff, give, uh, I guess, because the listener might not be fully familiar with you, give, give the listener a little bit of a background on who you are and a bit about what you do. I'm an author and a journalist and the director of research for the Flow Genome Project. So what I primarily work on is disruptive technology. Sometimes I work on disruptive external technologies, vertical farming, that sort of stuff, stem cells, etc. Sometimes I work on disruptive internal technologies. Rise of Superman is about flow states, which are probably the most in- disruptive internal technology available to any of us. Okay. Okay. And the idea, I like how you frame it up as though it's a technology. It's, it's something that has evolved in the same way that technology has evolved and that it's something that we can use in a very practical way. So this is kind of like a peak performance. Guys like Tony Robbins, guys like him teach people how to do. Is it the same kind of thing as that? No, not at all. So let, let's define flow states for your listeners. Let's, let's give people some context and then, then I'll answer your question. So flow states are defined technically as optimal states of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. And I think everybody has had some experience with these states. If you've ever lost an afternoon to a, to a great conversation or gotten so sucked into a work project that everything else falls away, then you've probably tasted the experience. In flow, we become so focused on the task at hand that everything else disappears. Action and awareness start to merge. Our sense of self, self-consciousness, those disappear completely. Time dilates, so sometimes it slows down and you get that freeze frame effect like you're in a car crash. Sometimes it speeds up and five hours will pass by in five minutes. And throughout, all aspects of performance, and that's mental and physical, go through the roof. So Tony Robbins and the rest of those guys, they work A, primarily in self-help. Um, what I There's a couple of key differences. The first is that nothing I tell you here today are you going to apply on Monday and your life is going to immediately start getting better? It doesn't work that way. Flow is ubiquitous. The state shows up everywhere in anyone provided certain initial conditions are met. Unlike self-help, which is about a 5%, 10% improvement, flow offers a step function worth of change. And, you know, let me give you an example. McKinsey and Company, the, the business company, the business researching firm, did a 10-year study of top executives. They found top executives in flow are 500 times more productive than out of flow. That means you could go to work on Monday, spend Monday in a flow state, and take Tuesday through Friday off and get as much done as your steady state peers. That is a massive amplification, five times more productive is a 500% increase in productivity. Productivity is just one example. You could go to creativity. Studies show that flow provides about a 7x, so 700% boost in creativity. Uh, learning. The U.S. military did studies with snipers in flow, and they found that snipers in flow learn 200 to 500% faster than normal. So Malcolm Gladwell's famous 10,000 hours to mastery, the research shows that flow can cut it in half. 
So on one end, flow is not self-help because it is a much bigger change. The second reason is flow is a little dangerous. We now understand kind of the neurobiology of flow, what's going on underneath the surface. And as you pointed out in your introduction, one of the things that's going on is a huge neurochemical dump. You get five of the most potent neurochemicals the brain can produce all at once in a flow state. And that's kind of the only time that happens. Now, these chemicals are all performance-enhanced chemicals, but they're also the most addictive reward drugs the brain can produce. So you're getting a very, very deep and very, very addictive cocktails of neurochemistry. So when you're working with flow, you have to know what you're doing because you're playing with very fundamental biology, very powerful neurochemicals, and it can go wrong, disastrously so. What's an example? Like, a, Let's say I'm trying to hack this and I'm doing business and I'm uh, trying to hack this flow state. What could go wrong? Well, let me give you a, a couple simple examples. So we know... I have to back up, actually. To answer your question, I have to tell you a little bit more about what we know about flow. So flow science goes back about 150 years. First 120 of those years, first 130 maybe, were spent figuring out what is the psychology of the state, right? What are its characteristics and what are some of its psychological triggers? What brings it on? What precipitates the state? Out of this research into flow triggers, right, these are preconditions that bring on more flow, one of the things discovered is known as the challenge skills ratio. Very simply, we get into flow follows focus, right? It's a height of massive, it's a state of massively heightened focus. So all these triggers are ways of driving attention into the now. One of the easiest ways to do that is the challenge skills ratio. It means that when you approach a task, the challenge of the task should be slightly harder, should slightly exceed the skills you bring to bear right? You want to find flow frequently. You want to constantly be putting yourself into situations where you're stretching, but not snapping, right? It's a very slight gradient, but it's a, it's a gradient nonetheless. So that means that when you're looking for flow, when you're seeking the state, trying to get more of the state in your life, you are taking, you are climbing the ladder of escalating risk. You are pushing yourself slightly farther, slightly farther, slightly farther, day in and day out, over and over and over again. And it doesn't matter what your profession is. For action adventure sport athletes, just push them into situations where if they make a mistake, they're going to die. But you can see it, you know, when jazz moved into bebop, right? This was a very, very big risk for those musicians when filmmaking in the 70s moved into auteur filmmaking. Every time these guys pushed, they kept pushing and kept pushing, kept pushing, and suddenly they got to the edges of things where they were suddenly betting their lives in the case of some of the athletes or their careers in the case of some of the artists. And you see this with businessmen as well, right? Businessmen will constantly, who are good at this, will constantly be seeking harder and harder and harder challenges. For myself as a writer, this means that, you know, I'm now uh, starting to work on my eighth book, and the ideas I'm going at are far bigger than anything I've ever gone at before, because I want to raise the challenge level. But there's always that danger of, hey, maybe these ideas are, are, are just too big for me. I'm not, maybe, maybe I shouldn't be writing, you know what I mean? Like, maybe I shouldn't be going there. Yeah. Maybe people won't believe me. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm stretching too far, right? So there are a lot of other dangers. One of them is this escalating ladder of risk. Okay, okay. So the interesting thing here is, as the escalating, as the ladder, or the ladder of escalating risk goes up, also does the reward. So you got a businessman who's like Steve Jobs. He would be continually pushing the envelope where he's taking on bigger and bigger and bigger challenges. And it's risky on the one hand, but it's also those people in their respective fields, whether it's music or sports. I mean, you mentioned this in the book. It's these people who are taking things forward, who are actually making the real change. Yeah, that's absolutely 
correct, right? I mean, you have to be living in this way. But the other thing is what you find when you scratch the surface under, you know, all people and and all disciplines, right? When when researchers look at flow, right, and what flow has affected, change flow has affected in society, they now see flow at the heart of almost every world championship or gold medal that's ever been won. It underpins major scientific breakthroughs and accounts for significant progress in the arts, right? We've talked about what flow does in business. So yes, everywhere you're seeing people stretch, you are, you're seeing boundaries being broken. You're also finding flow. And this is, by the way, not a new finding. Back in the 40s, the psychologist Abraham Maslow, um, up until he had come along, early research on flow had, had mistakenly, you know, looked at it and thought we were looking at mystical experiences, something that was common in religious people, people on spiritual paths, but not common in, in, in normal people. And then Abraham Maslow came along in the 40s and he was looking at this state and he wasn't interested in religious people. He was actually interested in successful people across the board. It doesn't matter what you do. He was studying successful people. He wanted to know what commonalities they shared. And what he found, didn't matter who he talked to, and he looked at Einstein and Eleanor Roosevelt and Frederick Douglass and on and on, he found, first of all, a lot of his subjects were atheists. So the idea that this was a mystical experience kind of went out the window. (laughs) But he found that across the boards, you know, most of these people used massively heightened attention to produce altered states of consciousness that allowed them to do some of their best work. Right. He was looking at flow and he found flow a commonality among all successful people. We, this, is, this has only continued, right? In the 1960s and 70s, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who was then the chairman of the University of Psychology of Chicago, uh, University of Chicago Psychology Department, came along and he went around the world and did a global study asking everybody he could think of. So he started out with like experts, rock climbers, chess players, dancers, etc., and then surgeons, and then he just started talking to everybody else. So he talked to people writing advertising copy. He talked to people who were, you know, Italian grape farmers, Navajo sheep herders, Detroit assembly line workers, Japanese teenage motorcycle, everybody could think of, right? They all told them the same thing. They were at their best. They felt their best when they were in this state of flow. That is when they were doing their greatest work. So the point is not just that flow shows up, you know, when we are pushing, you know, the great boundaries, of course it does, but it also shows up when anybody is pushing themselves to be their best. Right. Right. And I love this. So it's not, you don't have to be extraordinary to access this state. It's really just about within your personal realm of, there's that image that a lot of people have seen, actually. This would be a good way to illustrate. You've got that circle, which is your comfort zone. And then you've got, you know, you stay in there and not much is happening. But if you step outside it too far, then you break down. But if you're right on the, if you're just outside, if you're just outside that edge, that's when you start to access that state. But everyone, even the smallest people who there's nothing seemingly exceptional about them, they have their own comfort zone. If they step slightly outside of that, they're going to start to access this state in varying degrees. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And we have to make it clear, most people have already experienced flow. They probably didn't know what was going on because it doesn't show up all that frequently. In that McKinsey study, they calculated that most people spend less than 5% of their work life in flow. Yep. Right now, that depends on your job, of course. Coders, software coders, get into flow all the time. It's kind of fundamental. Video game designers, very fundamental. Surgeons, very fundamental. Mm. Certain other jobs are more difficult. I make my living as a writer. Flow is fundamental. I don't survive as a writer without the state. And if you look through my career, like you know, go through the thousand magazine articles and the eight books, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, what you're going to see is the ones that have won awards, the best-selling books. The articles that have won awards, all of them were written in flow states. 
Okay. So let's dive in right here then to this writing stuff. So you're a writer and you've, you just mentioned that the best books you've read, the ones that have gotten the most attention are ones where you've been in a flow state. Now, this is a great area to dive into because a lot of people, when they sit down to say, write an email or write some advertising copy or write a sales letter, they get tongue-tied. Most people, I mean, it's a whole classic writer's block. They just can't get started. So what you're talking about is that there are ways to access this flow state whereby not only will you get started writing, but you'll actually write the best stuff you've ever written. So how do you, I mean, how do you get into this? What does it mean for you to be in a flow state? And then how do you get there? Well, you're asking a number of different questions and I'm going to back it up further, right? It starts with creativity. So as I mentioned earlier, flow states have triggers. Creativity is a trigger for flow. What that actually means under the surface, if you look at creativity kind of from a neurobiological level, what you see is risk-taking because you're going to have to do something new and you're going to have to put it into the public sphere. So there's risk-taking involved. Risk is actually a trigger for flow. Every time we take a risk, the brain releases a neurochemical called dopamine. This is one of the chemicals that underpins flow and that helps put you into the state. Risk also focuses attention. It drives attention into the now, right? Obviously, there's danger, so it focuses attention. Simultaneously, you see pattern recognition. Pattern recognition is the ability to link ideas together in new and unusual ways. So creativity, this isn't always the case, but often is recombinatory. It's the result of something novel bumping into something old. So a novel experience bumping into an old thought create something utterly new, right? That's how it works under the surface. And to make those connections for for the novel thought to trigger the bump into the old idea, you need pattern recognition. So where flow comes into play here is it actually amplifies both sides of this equation. When we're in the state of flow, when we're actually in the state, the neurochemicals that underpin the state sort of surround the creative process. So you get I mentioned dopamine. You also get a chemical called norepinephrine. Ignore the fancy names, but just what's important is that these two chemicals together massively increase focus, right? So we're paying more attention. We're taking in more information. So that heightens our access to novel information. We're paying more attention to what's going on in the world. We're seeing more. We're taking in more information. We have actually greater access to novelty. So we have greater access to the front end of the creative process. Another thing these chemicals do is they lower signal to noise ratios, which is a fancy way of saying they allow the brain to see more patterns to make more connections between ideas. So not only are you taking in more ideas, the brain is heightening its ability to link these ideas together. You're also getting another neurochemical called anandamide. This increases lateral thinking. This is our ability to link tangentially related ideas together. So these three chemicals essentially surround the creative process. So when we're in flow, all are heightened, right? So everything becomes easier. Flow is actually a technical term. Most people don't know this, but the state got its name because when you're in flow, every decision, every action leads seamlessly, fluidly from the last. So flow feels flowy. The ideas just kind of roll. There are reasons for this neurobiologically. One of them is that your pattern recognition system is all jacked up. So one idea can lead to the next, can lead to the next, can lead to the next, Hmm. right? So in flow, once you're in that state, the writing is going to go really, really well. The question you're asking is, if you're not in flow, if you're facing the blank page, right, how do you get yourself into that state? That's a kind of a different question, and it's got a couple different answers. I think there are three easy answers. The first we talked about earlier is the challenge skills zone, right? How do you push up the challenge level? It, in flow. When I'm talking to young writers and, and teaching them about this stuff, I always say there are two tricks I use all the time when I'm stuck and I don't and I don't know what to do. First of all, good writing 
I don't care what you're writing, means telling the truth. You have to be slightly vulnerable. How vulnerable slightly vulnerable? Well, I want the challenge to be slightly exceed my skill level. So I have discovered that for me, that means I have to tell enough of the truth that I'm always slightly uncomfortable with what I'm writing. And the feeling of uncomfortability doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily go away. I have just learned to recognize it as a level of honesty that leads to good writing, to compelling writing, to something people want to read. And on top of it, I'm taking risks here. I'm giving myself the space to push up the challenge level, to take risks, and and to use those things to slide into, into flow. Concurrently, one of the other things I often do to push up the risk level, and I think this is a very useful technique for anybody, and it's going to sound silly, but go to your bookshelf, close your eyes, shove your hand out, grab a book at random, open it up, look at the first sentence you see, and steal that sentence. Take that sentence, write it down. That's the first sentence of what you're writing, right? But you're not going to, you can't take the words, obviously, because that's plagiarism. So replace all the words with your words. If there's a noun there, you write a noun. If there's a verb there, you write a verb. You're trying to write in somebody else's style and somebody else's voice. By doing that, right, you're replacing their words with your words. And once you get that first sentence, you're going to try to keep going in there, in that voice. It's like wearing a costume, right? People are much more audacious, bold, creative, whatever you want when they're wearing costumes because they're slightly hidden. If you start writing in somebody else's voice and you make it about trying to write your best work in their voice, even though you're not, don't copy their sentences, copy their structure. It is a create, it requires pattern recognition, Hmm. which will release dopamine, which will trigger flow. Uh So these are two very simple exercises. The thing you have to remember about flow, this is fundamental neurobiology. This is evolutionary biology. Everybody is hardwired for optimal performance. It's ubiquitous. It shows up everywhere. So all we're doing is we're playing with ways to drive attention, right? So these tricks, they may seem really slight and small. You know what I mean? It it seems kind of weird that something so small could bring on something so big, but this is just the way we're hardwired. We're hardwired to have easy access to the state. You just need to know what you're doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. One thing that works for me, I think a few of the listeners will relate to this, is is when I'm writing, say, an email versus a sales letter. I'm not sure how much you've experienced with like advertising stuff, but say with the sales letter, I find it really hard to write. I get all tongue-tied. But let's say if I sit down to write an email, which is a much more relaxed form of marketing, it's... uh, Often how I start an email, especially if I can't think of anything to say, and I'll do this with sales letters as well. I mean, you can do this with a with an article or a book or anything you're writing. Is I'll just start writing. So I'm sitting here in my room. It's 3.33 p.m. and I'm drinking a coffee and here I am. I've got to sit here and write you an email or write you or whatever. And it's almost like when you remove the, the I guess the plug, you just let things, I mean, here's that word, you let things flow. Things just start, it's kind of like the brain starts, it's all blocked up. But once it starts going, it really starts going. And then I can go back after the fact and edit that those first few sentences out but initially those first few sentences can be the uh, the catalyst to actually trigger the rest of the writing so that's sort of like the tricks you although that'd be another trick you're absolutely correct um there's two things i want to mention uh one is it's important to know that flow a lot of people think of flow as a binary like a light switch you're either in the zone or you're out of the zone doesn't work that way at all. It's actually a four-stage cycle. And a couple of stages don't feel flowy at all. At the front end of a flow state is what is known as struggle. This is a loading phase. It means you're overloading the brain with information. In the struggle phase, as a writer, for example, this is when, if I'm researching an article, this is when I'm 
reading books, I'm reading articles, I'm doing hundreds of interviews, I'm trying to figure out what the structure of what I'm going to write, you know, what shape it's going to take place. And you're really driving yourself to the absolute brink of frustration. And then you talked about something very interesting. And this is the second stage of the flow cycle. Once you've overloaded yourself and you're at the brink of frustration, you're can't learn anymore and you can't take it anymore, you need to take your mind off the problem. You actually need to relax. Second stage of the cycle is known as release. And it happens if, you know, some people get all their inspiration in the shower. They've been working all day and they go into the shower. It's because by taking your mind off the problem, what is happening in flow, one of the things that is happening is we're trading the conscious mind for the subconscious mind. We're handing over information processing duties to our subconscious, right? And we're doing this for a lot of different reasons. The conscious mind is very energy expensive, it's very slow, it's not very fast. Subconscious is much faster, it's much more energy efficient. The brain is always trying to conserve energy. So the minute you relax and take your mind off the problem, the brain can make this switch. The subconscious is much faster in the conscious mind. So it can find those patterns much, much easier. That that release period triggers the flow state itself, which is the third stage in the cycle. Great, huge high. And this is followed by a deep low on the back end of the flow cycle is a recovery phase. Those neurochemicals that we spoke about earlier are expensive for the brain to produce. You need nutrition, you need sunlight, you need vitamins, etc., etc. It takes a little while for the brain to be able to build them up again. During this period, you go from this very big high to this deep low. A lot of people have a lot of difficulty kind of navigating that low. We, earlier we talked about the dark side of flow. That low is part of the dark side. You have to basically learn that, you know, you need to go to the, through that recovery phase. That's, by the way, where that amplified learning takes place. And if you're stressed out during recovery because you don't feel as great as you used to, you'll block that learning. Cortisol, which is the stress hormone, blocks learning. Interestingly, you pointed out you go back and you edit later. This recovery phase when you're really down is perfect because in flow, pattern recognition is all fired up so you have lots of ideas. Not every one of them is a great one, but it <laughs> feels like they're all great, right? So this recovery phase, it's actually, especially for writers, I think, perfect because it's a perfect time to go back and edit and see what was a good idea and what was a bad idea. So it's interesting that the process you just described sort of maps onto the flow cycle itself. Mm. I absolutely love this idea. This, I've had this so many times with not just writing but just life in general where I'm frustrated and I'm depressed and, and I'm just pissed off that I can't figure something out. And then uh, maybe I chill out, I go for a walk or I'm, I'm off doing groceries or something like that. And all of a sudden, it's like the mind just starts firing. It just goes into overdrive. And it's like, boom, there's the solution. And then you know, I get home. Yep. I sit down to work or I start to, I, I often get it in conversations with someone. It's like the idea clicks in and all of a sudden you see everything in a whole new light. It's, I love, like, so, I'm trying to remember those moments. Let me take it one, let me take it one step further for you. This is not directly related to flow, though, though it tends to produce flow states on the back end. Two things to know. First of all, if you can't get started, right, if it's not clicking, there's one of two reasons, right? The first is that you haven't done enough homework. You really haven't filled the brain with enough ideas for it to start making pattern, start pattern matching and making connections between ideas. So sometimes if the walks, if those little hacks that you're talking about aren't working, it's because you actually need to do more research. You need to load the brain up more. Simultaneously, if it's not clicking, if you've already loaded the brain up and you're super frustrated, you still can't find it, and nothing's coming together. You have to understand that this pattern matching, this pattern recognition is fundamental to the brain. It's what neurons do at a basic level. So there's nothing fancy going on here, and you can actually program the system. So if you want to find out more about this, you can Google the MacGyver method, um, which is one guy who's teaching it. But the simple idea here is 
and I do this, by the way, at the end of every writing day, right before I'm about to go up for the end of work, pull out a, a blank piece of paper, and I give my subconscious an assignment. So if I can't write the opening line to my new book, I say, subconscious, I would like you to write out the opening line to my next book. I'd like to wake up tomorrow morning, start writing, and have that line, please. And then you write out the question, and then you'd want to write, I use a numerical system, kind of as many things. You may not know what the opening line is, but you know you wanted to include the word peripatetic, and you know whatever you descriptors, you feelings, guts, whatever you have about this, write that down too, and then be done for the day. What is going to happen is at some point, you're going to forget that you did that. You're going to click over from the conscious mind to the subconscious, right? Because writing it down, that's why you're writing it down. You're kind of, by bringing in the tactile sense with everything else, you're just kind of giving memory a little bit of a toehold into it. You're saying, hey, this is important. Do something with this. Pattern recognition will take over. Wake up the next morning, just as you pointed out, start writing. It doesn't matter what you're writing. Start writing. You will find that the answer to your question, use of that line or, or whatever, will show up within the first couple of sentences because your brain has done the work while you were asleep, while you were whatever, and you just have to kind of kick back in and access those files. It's simple brain function, but you can program, especially as a writer, you can program your brain to problem solve for you creatively while you do other things. Yeah, I love it. And it's just great how simple it is. And like what I've been telling myself recently is, you know, I go take time off, but I know the brain's still working. So it's, I guess it's giving me the permission almost to kind of go and relax, go bowling or go, I haven't been bowling in two years. You're super right. We teach this. Um, and it's so it, one of the things that's really hard, especially for high-performing individuals is understanding that flow has a cycle and that the brain works a certain fundamental way and you can't short-circuit the process, right? If you want to go back into a flow state, you have to go all the way through the cycle. Most of the brain is like that. Most things in the brain work that way. There's a process. There's a cycle. It's very useful to know how learning works under the surface, how flow works under the surface, because once you can figure that out, if you have to do something creative for a living, there, are, there aren't shortcuts. But there are ways to kind of maximize the process, right? Hmm. It's almost like you just learn to embrace it instead of thinking, well, how do I get on a high every single day? It's like, well, what stage am I in and how can I just maintain my, you know, just to keep showing up each day, keep showing up to work despite the fact that I feel frustrated because I know that in a few days or next week, that state's going to trigger. Then I'm going to get a whole bunch of work done. And then afterwards, I'll be able to relax, do some editing, chill out, take a nap, all that sort of stuff. So you can yep. embrace it, ride the roller coaster. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, on a certain level, you don't want to take the roller coaster personally, right? I mean, that's really the truth of the matter. You can't really escape it, as far as I can tell, but you can't take it too personally. You just have to understand it's a process and that what you're feeling is frustration, for example, on the front end, flow state when you can't start writing, when nothing's coming together, that frustration is actually part of the process. It's a good thing and not a bad thing. Yep. Knowing this over time and practicing with it and living into it, I guess, gives you the confidence to kind of handle the emotions, have the emotional control, kind of get through it. The other thing that's so important, as you pointed out, you need that recovery phase. You often see this in business. I was, you know, I was talking to a, high, a salesman a couple of days ago that does really high-stakes sales. He was talking about how he'll get into a flow state, he'll go on a tear, he'll, you know, quadruple, you know, his sales and, you know, blow his quotas out of the water 300% greater for, you know, a period of time. And, you know, on the back end of that, right, when the quarter's over, he'll actually need that deep recovery period. But instead, he works for an organization where they say, oh, my God, you did so great. Here, here's half the territory and we're going to triple your quotas. And there's no time for recovery and the challenge level goes way up and he's blocked from flow. We talked earlier about action adventure sport athletes. One of the reasons these guys got so good at getting into flow so repeatedly has nothing to do with 
anything they were doing consciously, it's their sports are very weather dependent. If you're going to ride big waves, you have to wait for the storms to come in. If you're going to ski kind of these amazing lines, you need perfect powder. So what happens is storms blow in, everybody charges really hard for a few days, gets into flow, does whatever, storms leave, and there's a built-in recovery period on the back end. Hmm. This doesn't happen in our daily life very often, and high-performing people rarely give themselves time to recover, and it's really important. It's really important to know that, you know, when you chill out and go back and edit and, you know, kick your feet up and relax, that's critical. Just like taking your mind off the problem is critical. These are counterintuitive things that kind of go against what high performers normally do, which is just buckle down and buckle down and drive forward and drive forward, you know, hell or high water. Yeah. You have to know that, you know, slow and steady wins this race. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's kind of like... Yeah, everyone seems to go through that stage where all they want to do is just work, 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 work because, you know, they're a hustler and if they just work harder than anyone else, they're going to get there. But then eventually everyone realizes that when you do that and you burn out and then you crash and then it's much worse than if you're taking a short break every now and then. Yeah. Cool. Absolutely. All right, well, let's wrap it up here. I really appreciate you coming on to talk about uh, about Flow. Before we wrap this up, though, uh, give the listener a heads up about where they can go to uh, learn more about your books and uh, and then we'll say goodbye. Absolutely. You want to check out riseofsuperman.com, stephencotler.com, or my organization, the Flow Genome Project. Co. And on the Flow Genome Project website, there's a flow diagnostic free of charge. Anybody can sign up and take it. And it basically is, a, is kind of a quick survey that looks at the categories in your life, the things that you do that you like to do where you're most likely to find flow. So it's a great primer if people want to get started. Cool. I'm going to go check that out right after we sign up. One other thing was uh, your other book, Abundance, which I read two years ago. I absolutely loved it. It put me in an extremely positive state just about the future of mankind. So if, uh, if you're looking for uh, some, uh, something that's going to pump you up and get you excited, go and check out uh, Stephen's book, Abundance, as well. Stephen, thank you. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you want to discover more insider tips, tricks, and secrets about driving sales with email marketing, sign up for daily email tips from the autoresponder guy. Go to dropdeadcopy.com slash podcast. Sign up, confirm your email address, and I'll send you daily emails on how to improve your email marketing and make more sales via email. You'll find out why open rates don't matter and the seven-letter word that underlies all effective marketing and much more. Oh,